Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. This is a foundation of your practice on the path to enlightenment. It's a very important required aspect of your practice. Without a daily consistent meditation practice, you would find it impossible in order to attain enlightenment or this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. You couldn't attain enlightenment without meditation, but you also can't attain enlightenment with only meditation either. You need to learn the teachings in order to apply them in your daily life. The entire path that the Buddha taught, the Eightfold Path. The last session that we had on Sunday at 9 o'clock Thai time, we discussed mental health, a modern day delusion, chapter 22. And in order to set up our talk for that chapter, I discussed the Four Noble Truths, and I even included the Three Universal Truths just prior to talking about the Four Noble Truths. So today, what we're going to do is we're just going to review that briefly. And the reason why is because in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha essentially gives us the origin of the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and then the complete solution of how to eliminate the problems in the mind. And breathing mindfulness meditation is part of that solution, part of that remedy. So it's really important in doing meditation that you understand why you're doing it, because then it's going to inform your meditation practice so you actually know what you should be doing while you're actually meditating and building up this life practice of a consistent, steady, dedicated practice of breathing mindfulness meditation, which is just one component of your entire life practice. So let's review what we discussed on Sunday. Here I'm going to use some visual aids to kind of help me, which I didn't prepare for Sunday because we were already talking about many different things. So I would like to use these visual aids to kind of help you to really soak these teachings into the mind so they just become very, very clear in your understanding. As we learn and understand the teachings, what you're doing here is you're building up your wisdom. By learning these teachings intellectually, you then should take these teachings and apply them in practice so that you can then see that these are in fact truth. We have the three universal truths and the four noble truths. Nothing that I share with you ever should be believed 
I'm not interested in anyone believing me, and you should never believe me nor anyone else. It's important as a practitioner on this path to enlightenment that you see the truth for yourself. And through seeing that truth, you will then acquire wisdom. And the mind is liberated through wisdom. So the first of the three universal truths is impermanence. Impermanence is that everything is constantly changing. There's no permanent state in terms of the material objects, possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas. Everything in the world is constantly changing. All conditioned thoughts will cease to exist. There's no permanent thought that you're going to have. Everything that arises will cease to exist. The only thing that has a steady, consistent, or fixed state is enlightenment. But everything else is impermanent, meaning it's temporary. It is not permanent. This is impermanence. And rather than just believing what I'm sharing here, it's important that you actually observe it in practice. And this is where you can look around. You can look around the world because this is a universal truth. The Buddhist teachings show up in the world. He's teaching the natural laws of existence. So one of the ways that you can practice is look around you and see, is the Buddha actually telling the truth? Did he really truly discover the natural laws of existence? And if you can find something that's permanent, then you've essentially disproved the Buddha. And at the same time, if you don't find anything that's permanent, then you're soaking into the mind and creating this wisdom that, yes, indeed, everything is impermanent. So your hair, your clothes, your relationships, the physical body, jobs, income, places where you live, everything in your life has been constantly changing over and over and over again. And you can look at this and really soak it into the mind so that you know without a doubt that impermanence is indeed a universal truth. The second universal truth is discontentedness. This is where the Buddha describes the three feelings that the mind experiences. A painful feeling, a pleasant feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. This is essentially how the mind moves from conditioned thought after thought after thought after thought. We experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fears. All of these are very painful feelings that the mind experiences. We also experience pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation. And we experience feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Things like boredom or loneliness or shyness. These three feelings are impermanent. The mind cycles and moves from experience to experience, having these experiences of these feelings, and the mind becomes discontent. When the mind is sad, it's discontent. When it feels anger, it's discontent. When it feels guilt or shame or fears, it's discontent. If you're missing your loved ones or missing home or missing certain situations in the past, the mind is discontent because it's longing for those situations. If the mind is happy or excited or elated, it's discontent because it can't hold on to those feelings permanently. And therefore, 
their discontent. This is why the mind oftentimes when it's happy or excited or elated, we fall, we trip, we drop something, we break something, we um, pull a muscle, you know, jumping up and down or whatever it is. It's because the mind is discontent. It's so excited, so elated, so happy. And then, of course, when the mind is bored or lonely or shy, the mind is discontent because it's a feeling that's neither painful nor pleasant. Okay. Some people, when they teach this, they will use the word suffering. So if you're learning Gautama Buddha's teachings through any other resources, you might see the word suffering, but I don't use this word because it doesn't really fully illuminate what the Buddha was talking about. The Buddha was talking about painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And through this practice, we're working to eliminate this discontentedness. But suffering only explains painful feelings. And oftentimes the word suffering brings the mind to think about physical suffering. But what the Buddha is talking about here, it's all mental. And when you're happy or excited or elated, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or if you were shy, you wouldn't say you were suffering. So the word discontentedness will bring your mind more wholly to what the Buddha was talking about when he was describing the second universal truth of what it is that we're working to eliminate in this practice. We're looking to eliminate this discontentedness and bring the mind to the middle where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Happiness, because it's impermanent, we can't hold on to it permanently, so therefore it's discontented. It's based on certain conditions, and when those conditions are removed, the mind then moves to another feeling. So the happiness might be based on a new relationship, a new job, a new income, new shoes, uh, something wonderful that's happened in your life. The mind becomes happy, but then eventually that becomes impermanent and it wears off and now the mind becomes bored or lonely or sad or angered. So it's important to move the mind to this permanent mental state where it's not based on any conditions. It can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without any conditions that creates those. By removing the conditions and not holding on with craving, desire, or attachment, the mind can then reside in this enlightened mental state permanently. Then we have the third universal truth, which is non-self. Non-self is the teaching that we essentially walk around in our mind with this concept of a self. We think there's a permanent self. We have this name that we've been given at birth and we start identifying with this name and we think that there is a permanent self here. We hold this in the mind. We think that the body is me or I. We think that our self-identity or our self-image is the self. And because of this, the concept of the self existing in the mind, we become very selfish. We become very self-centered. We tend to kind of wall ourselves off from other people. We tend to protect this self-image, this self-identity, and this ego, becoming 
angered or frustrated or sad if somebody talks to us in a way that we feel is inappropriate, in a way that maybe makes us feel uh, less of a person because we're holding on to this self and we're looking for this reassurance from other people. But what the Buddha is explaining here in the teaching of non-self is that we essentially don't have a self. There is no self. But because the mind holds on to one, then the mind will be discontent because the self is then discontent. But by recognizing that there is no self, by realizing this intellectually, and then practicing certain aspects of the teachings in order to eliminate this self, becoming humble and peaceful, eradicating this ego, dissolving this ego, then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because we no longer become hostile and we protect this self. In the animal existences, we needed this self. We needed it in order to survive in all the countless animal existences that we had. A lion or a tiger or an elephant or a bear or a fish, all of these various species that we've been in the past needed a self in order to protect it. And animals are oftentimes very fearful and they can't eliminate those qualities of the mind. But here in the human state, we don't need this self. We can actually eliminate it. And through doing so, the mind can then reside more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So there is no I, there is no me, there is no you. As you've aged, this image that you've had of yourself has constantly been changing. The way you looked at yourself, the way other people looked at you, the things that you considered to be your self-image and self-identity has constantly changed. This is how you know there is no permanent self because it keeps changing. And the reason why it's changing is because it only exists in the mind. So by eradicating the self through various teachings, namely working to eliminate the self-identity and self-image and eradicating the ego, then the mind can reside in this enlightened mental state. Okay, so these are the three universal truths I would like to pause here and see if we have any questions from anyone across social media and Facebook or YouTube and our virtual classroom of Zoom. See if there's anyone who would like clarification or has any questions on any of these three universal truths. Hi, David. We have no questions at the moment. Okay. Let's move on then to the four noble truths so that you can learn how this three universal truths are essentially providing a foundation in which to understand the four noble truths. The four noble truths essentially give you the origin of the problem, the cause, the solution, and then the complete solution to this problem that we have in the mind. There's actually multiple problems that the Buddha discussed and gave us remedies for but here we get the primary problem, and this is why Gautama Buddha made this his very first discourse. The words that I'm using here are my interpretation of the Four Noble Truths in a way that is easily digestible for practitioners in today's society. The first Noble Truth that I share is that every unenlightened being will experience discontentedness. 
So everyone that is unenlightened will experience this discontent mind. You will experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Okay, so if you're experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, if you have missing or you're missing people or missing situations, you know that you're right now, you're unenlightened. If your mind has this happiness and excitement and elation, and even the mind might be longing for that and craving those feelings, then you know that you're not yet enlightened. If the mind experiences boredom or loneliness or shyness, then you know that you're not yet enlightened. And that's okay because there's lots and lots of unenlightened people in the world. You're on the path to training the mind to come into the middle and attain this enlightened mental state. The second noble truth is discontentedness is caused by our own attachments because the mind craves for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So this discontentedness, this anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, this happiness, excitement, elation, this boredom, loneliness, shyness, we are actually causing it ourselves because of our attachments. What attachments and craving is, is it's a mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind craves and wants something. It desires something. It attaches to things. It looks to hold on. It looks to hold on to relationships, to jobs, to incomes, to situations. It just really wants something so badly. And if it doesn't get it, then it becomes discontent. Or if the mind acquires a certain thing and it latches onto it, then when that thing is gone, then the mind becomes discontent. So we essentially are causing the discontentedness ourselves. This is why when people die, for example, the mind becomes very sad or in some cases angered or frustrated. Or if it's a lifetime partner and we're used to having them around, we might experience boredom or loneliness. All of these discontent feelings are from the mind craving, having this mental longing with a strong eagerness. This is the problem. The mind craves permanence. And it looks to latch on and hold on to these thoughts, these ideas, our opinions, our views, and we defend them very strongly. And that's where their anger and frustration comes out. Whereas if we were more relaxed, we didn't hold on to things so strongly, we just kind of let it go. We train the mind to let it go then the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, this enlightened mind state. And then that's the third universal truth, essentially. What's the solution? The solution is the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating attachments. So by eliminating this mental longing with a strong eagerness, essentially training the mind not to have this strong desire this longing, this eagerness for wanting things so badly, training the mind not to hold on so tightly. By doing this, then the mind can be 
peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You know these universal truths are true because whenever you've had a certain situation where the mind has become discontent, as soon as you let it go, then the mind becomes content. The mind becomes peaceful, right? So the third universal truth is essentially teaching us to let go of this craving, desire, attachment, craving for things to be permanent because everything is impermanent. We have to recognize the relationships in our life are impermanent. The jobs that we have are impermanent. The income that we have is impermanent. The clothing we have, the possessions we have, our own children, our own partners, everything in our life is impermanent and it will leave us someday. Even this body, this human body is impermanent. It's constantly changing. Sometimes it's going to be healthy. Sometimes it's going to be sick. We were young. Now we start to get older. And as we get older, we feel aches and pains and problems arise in the body. We don't have our youthful appearance anymore. This is all impermanence. But if the mind latches on and it holds on craving permanence, then it's going to cause itself to be discontent. And then, of course, the fourth noble truth is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. And the first step of the Eightfold Path is called right view, having the right view of the world. Essentially, what the Four Noble Truths is giving us is self-responsibility, understanding that we are responsible for all of the discontent feelings. By taking responsibility for all the discontent feelings, essentially what the Four Noble Truths is helping us to see is that we have the ability to eliminate the discontent mind. If we blame our discontent feelings on other people and it's other people who are making me angry, then you might go around and try to train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things your way. And good luck with that. It's not going to really work. It's not going to work at all. It's challenging enough to train just one mind, which is your mind. So what the Four Noble Truths is helping you to see is that because you are causing all the discontent feelings, you can also eliminate them through training just one mind, this mind, the mind that you have right now. You can actually eliminate the discontent feelings through training the mind with the Eightfold Path. And if you accept responsibility for these emotions, these feelings, these thoughts, these ideas that are arising in the mind, then you're practicing right view. Someone who's practicing right view isn't going to blame other people for the emotions and feelings that arise in their mind. They're going to know that they're causing it and that they can also eliminate it. So this is right view. Oftentimes in life, we're taught that the goal of life is to be happy. And some people are really chasing this happiness, this excitement, this elation, pleasure seeking, seeking those pleasant feelings. Well, if you're doing that, that means you're setting yourself up to fail because someday those conditions that are creating the happiness aren't going to be there anymore. They're impermanent. And the mind is then going to move to sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, 
boredom, loneliness, shyness, or some other feeling. So don't chase happiness as a pleasant feeling. Sure, when you're enlightened, there's going to be joy. There's going to be good experiences. But if you chase after these pleasant feelings with craving, with this longing, with a strong eagerness, you're essentially setting yourself up to fail because you're chasing the condition that's going to create the happiness. And then when that condition is removed, the mind's going to then move to some other feeling. And you're just going to keep chasing this happiness all the time rather than removing the conditions and training the mind to be naturally peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Okay? What you need to do is train the mind to be satisfied with what is. Oftentimes when we become bored or lonely or some other condition, we just look for some other thing to latch on to, to create those pleasant feelings. What you need to do is just train the mind to be satisfied with what is. If it's bored, okay, then the mind is bored for now. Let's apply some effort and go for a walk. Let's go outside. Let's look around. Let's do some other activity that can move the mind into the middle and release this boredom. Okay? So look for ways to just be satisfied with what is. Once you attain the enlightened mental state, it's permanent. It will never leave you. You will apply effort and learn this eightfold path to work closer and closer to enlightenment where the mind becomes more and more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And as you gradually move in that direction based on the wisdom that you acquire in these teachings and apply in practice, you will never lose that wisdom. Once you learn something, you will never go back and actually decide, you know, I kind of liked it when I had the ego and I walked around arrogant and people talked bad to me and they were angry with me and people yelled and hollered at me because I didn't talk polite and kind. Even though I learned over the last few years to be really kind, polite and respectful, I think I'm going to go back to being angry and frustrated and arrogant again. That was actually fun. You'll never do that. The mind won't do that. It will have too much wisdom. It will have seen the light, so to speak, and it won't go back to the darkness. So by you learning and practicing these teachings to acquire wisdom, you will then move the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state and gradually move closer to it where you can then have this permanent mental state, not based on any conditions, and the mind will be permanently peaceful, permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, and permanently joyful because it's not based on any conditions. You've actually removed all the things that were standing in the way and causing the activity of craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. You will have removed all the darkness, the hostility, the anger, the frustration. You will have removed that through developing your life practice. So let me pause here and see if we have any questions on any of the Four Noble Truths. I'd like to ask a question, David. So something we see in certainly modern society, and it's always been there, I think, is a very hedonistic approach to life. Endless pleasure-seeking. Almost as though 
it's built on this belief that yeah there's a cost to it yes it's painful yes there's a hangover but actually it's worth it and i'm reminded of a quote by bob marley who said the truth is everyone's going to hurt you you just got to find the ones worth hurting for now i'm not saying i agree with that but that's certainly a view that a lot of people hold and i think it might be one of the primary objections to people who are new to this viewpoint right view the four noble truths so what would your guidance be to someone who holds such a view yeah if if you believe that somebody else is hurting you then you haven't yet established right view you're practicing wrong view because other people can't hurt you other people can do harmful things right somebody could come up to me and punch me or someone could shoot me with a gun and that will harm the physical body but it's not harming me because there is no me there is no i there is no you if somebody says something disrespectful and then i feel hurtful feelings because of it that's because the mind is craving for everybody to speak kind and polite to me and it's expecting that it has an attachment it has a desire it has this mental longing with a strong eagerness expecting that everyone's going to talk nice to me and then when somebody doesn't because the mind craves that so badly and because there's a self there self-image self-identity and ego then the mind causes itself to be hurt to be frustrated to be angry whereas if we eliminate these things out of the mind then if somebody says something disrespectful it's just like sound it's just like wind going you know past the ears you recognize that that's just that person speaking they're not practicing the teachings well this situation is impermanent and it doesn't have any reflection on me whatsoever that this person has chosen to be disrespectful it has no effect on this mind whatsoever because that's their speech and their speech is causing them problems if they're speaking to me in a disrespectful way they're speaking to everyone else disrespectfully around them as well and their life is just full of problems and there's no need for this mind to become angered or frustrated or irritated or annoyed just because of this other person you can just move right past it right so i think that's key because when we take responsibility for our own discontent mind then we open ourselves up to the reality that every discontentedness we experience is based on something we cause through our craving so i think when we see that then pleasure seeking pursuing pleasant sensations no longer seems like a worthwhile pursuit because if we do it out of craving it will always produce some kind of discontentedness and in your example if the pleasant feeling that someone is seeking is that they're looking for everybody to speak kind and polite and respectful to them and that's the pleasure and they find pleasure in that when people speak polite well everything's impermanent it's impossible to walk the face of this earth and never have anyone speak unkind to you so if the mind is holding on that's it's expecting this kindness it's expecting this 
permanent politeness, this permanent respectfulness. That's the mind craving, desire, attachment, a longing with a strong eagerness. And when it doesn't get that, i.e. somebody talks disrespectful to you, then the mind becomes discontent. And what you need to get to is where you recognize that that's that person's gamma. That person has chosen to speak unpolite, unkind, and it doesn't need to affect your mind unless you allow it to. Okay, thanks, David. Now, we have a question on Facebook from Joy. She asks, have you totally eliminated these things or are you still working on it? I no longer experience any sadness or frustration, anger, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, happiness, excitement, elation, boredom, loneliness, shyness. None of these things affect my mind or are experienced in my mind any longer. That's the reason why I understand these teachings as I do. And this is one of the reasons why I understand how to describe enlightenment as a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, because I'm describing it through the experiences that I've had. Okay, we have a question from Deborah. Is there a technique to block outside noise? I find this distracting and sometimes give up. You're never going to be able to block noise, so to speak. We live in a world where there's going to be noise. It's requires you to train the mind to be unaffected by the noise and recognize that there is going to be noise at certain times. So what I would suggest for you to do is put the mind in situations where there is noise and train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, even in situations where there's noise. If you're just so discontent that you need to remove the mind from the situation, you can do that. But another approach would be to use it as a training experience so that when there is noise, remain in the situation, train the mind to just accept it and understand that it's impermanent, and then slowly train the mind to be satisfied with what is and recognize that it can be calm and peaceful even when there's noise in the environment. We have a question from Aaron. What happens with love? I think that's a form of attachment. Like when you fall in love with someone, you get married and there's an attachment. In the unenlightened state, we mistakenly understand love as attachment because the mind has this longing with a strong eagerness for a partner or for a child or for a parent. And because of that longing with a strong eagerness, we think that that's love in the unenlightened state, but that's actually craving, desire, attachment. True love wouldn't have craving. True love, you can actually have care and love, kindness, compassion, for other beings without having this longing with a strong eagerness. In the book that I share, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, look at chapter 14. In there, there is the content talking about true love and how to love without attachment. Right now, you're thinking of love as attachment and you think that love is an attachment, but it's actually not love. There may be love there, but it's kind of being masked 
by this craving, desire, attachment. And that's why in relationships, oftentimes people get very hurt or very frustrated or very angered because there's so much craving, desire, attachment that the mind latches on. It wants things to be a certain way and then it causes itself to be discontent. But if you remove the craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, if you remove that from the mind, which is what we're going to be working on today, if you remove that from the mind in the relationship, then you can experience true love. What true love is, is that you have a genuine wish for others to be well in all situations. You just have a genuine wish for others to be well. I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. I have no expectations, no obligations, no requirements. I would just like to see you be well. That's true love. But what we tend to do in the unenlightened state is we say, I love you. Therefore, I would like you to make me happy. And I have these expectations that I expect you to do this and this and this. And when you do that, then I will tell you, I love you. And as long as you do these things, I will keep loving you. As long as you meet my expectations and my obligations, I will keep loving you. But as soon as you stop meeting my expectations and obligations, now I don't love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. This is what we do in the unenlightened state, but that's not love. That's actually attachment. We're attaching our happiness onto this relationship with the other person and we start creating these obligations for the other person to fulfill and that's essentially sabotaging the relationship because any and all attachments will cause discontentedness if you allow attachments craving and desire this mental longing with a strong eagerness to come into the relationship and you create that in the mind then you're going to sabotage the relationship because if there's attachment at some point, there's going to be discontentedness. But if you can train the mind slowly to understand what true love is and you and your partner, your children, your parents can practice true love, then you can have a relationship that is based on unconditional love. There's no conditions in true love. But in the unenlightened mind, when we talk about love, we place conditions on our love. And once people meet these conditions, then we say we love them. And then when they stop meeting these conditions, then we say we don't love you anymore. But that's not love. That's craving, desire, attachment, mental longing with a strong eagerness. So definitely look at chapter 14. And I did a talk on this several weeks ago that you can get on the podcast or the YouTube channel and you can learn about true love. It's one of the most rewarding things about this path is learning how to love without attachment and you can have amazing relationships where you never argue. You never get frustrated with each other. You're never upset. You're never annoyed with another person. And by learning how to practice true love, then you can love everyone and every being in the world because you're practicing true love. So definitely look at chapter 14 and the talks that I did on those topics. We have a follow-up from Joy. She asks, what about sex, abusive partners, cheating partners, etc.?" 
Right. So this falls into the moral conduct of what we teach as part of the Eightfold Path. While we shouldn't have expectations and obligations of another partner, there needs to be some basic foundational aspects of our conduct that lay the foundation for this healthy relationship, right? So I can have a relationship with somebody and they're agreeing that they're going to have a committed, faithful, loyal relationship with me, just one person. Now, if they decide to go out and be with another person, that's where you need to make the decision whether you're going to accept that into the relationship or not. I guarantee you, if that happens, there's going to be discontentedness in the relationship because the third precept is all about sexual conduct and how we can ensure that our sexual conduct doesn't hurt other beings. If somebody goes out of a relationship and has sexual contact with another being, this is going to cause harm in the relationship. Even if both people say, we're going to have an open relationship and allow this to happen, this relationship is never going to be close and intimate and very loving because in the back of the mind, the two individuals, even having accepted that they're having sexual contact with other people, are never going to be as close with each other as if they had a loving, committed, loyal relationship. So expectations and obligations are different than kind of baseline foundational requirements or needs for the relationship to be healthy. And in order for the relationship to be healthy, we need to practice harmlessness where we aren't interested in harming other beings. If we harm through our sexual conduct, then it's going to create harm in the relationship. Likewise, if there's physical abuse or mental abuse or things like this, this is where the individual has to decide whether they're going to continue in this relationship or not. Knowing that there's harm being done in the relationship means that there isn't the basic foundational needs in the relationship to have a healthy relationship. So there needs to be a well-established moral conduct moral code where both parties agree that they're not going to have partners outside of the relationship. They're going to be polite, kind, respectful. Of course, if you're both unenlightened, which many people are, you're going to get frustrated with each other in some situations. As long as you're not practicing true love and as long as there's still attachment and you're not enlightened, there's still going to be discontentedness. There's still going to be sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance. But choosing a partner as a life partner, you can now both agree that you're together in this relationship, committed, and you're going to work together to evolve and support and encourage each other on this path. Because if one partner is practicing true love without attachment, and the other one thinks that in order to show love, I need to be around this person all the time. I need to show them how much I love them through smothering them essentially is what we end up doing. Then if both parties are practicing two different philosophies of life or two different approaches to life, this is going to be a very challenging relationship. But if two people come together and agree that you're going to support and encourage each other along this path, then it can be a very fulfilling relationship where you're both practicing true love 
and supporting and encouraging each other along this path. So David, not only is all discontentedness caused by attachment, but something you said earlier, all attachments will lead to discontentedness of mind. Absolutely. So if we know we have an attachment, and even if we're not experiencing the discontentedness from it right now, but we know it's there, what are some approaches we can take? And how do we do that without creating unnecessary surplus discontent feelings? Okay, so let's keep in the theme of relationships, okay? Let's say like, uh, I know that I'm attached to my son. I have this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness for my child to be a certain way and to do certain things. And right now I'm fine because he's asleep and I'm here teaching. But let's just say in my mind, whenever I'm around him, I'm just trying to shape him and mold him. And I put my expectations on him of what I want for him as a parent. I see all this goodness that I would like for him to attain in this life. And because of that craving, desire, attachment, I'm putting pressure on my child to be a certain way. This is going to sabotage our relationship. It's going to introduce hostility and frustration and irritation on my part because he's not going to be able to fulfill all my expectations. And it's going to cause frustration, irritation, annoyance on his part because every time he's around dad or a lot of times when he's around dad, dad is putting these obligations on him that he just can't be his own person. He can't make his own decisions because dad's always trying to influence what he does and what he doesn't do. So this is how mental longing with a strong eagerness is always going to cause discontentedness. For example, in this relationship that I'm describing, if I was doing this with my son. So even though right now he's asleep and I'm here, if I knew that this attachment was causing discontentedness, then whenever I'm around him, and I feel this urge, I feel this pulling, this longing to try to tell him what to do, then I need to pull back from that because it's only going to cause me discontentedness if I pursue it and I allow this molding, this expectation, these obligations to be put on my son. And we can say this for a life partner too, or an employee, or a boss, or a parent, right? If we expect people to be a certain way, they're never going to be the way we expect them to be because we're holding in the mind these expectations and obligations for other people, wanting, expecting them to be a certain way. And there's no way that anybody can fulfill all of our expectations in terms of, I want you to be this kind of person and that kind of person and this kind of person. Everybody is their own person and they're going to be however they are. We shouldn't try to force or mold or shape people to be a certain way. But for example, with my son, I need to provide him guidance as a parent. So if he's lies, for example, or he goes outside and he hasn't taken a shower, or he hasn't brushed his teeth, I need to kindly guide him towards good, wholesome decisions because I can't be there all the time to make all the decisions for him of what he should do in his life. So rather than, Bailan, did you brush your teeth today? You're not going out of this house unless you brush your teeth, right? 
This is the mental longing and strong eagerness that's going to come across with hostility and anger and frustration in my speech. Rather, we need to take a more kind, gentle, respectful approach. Bailan, just curious, have you brushed your teeth today? We're getting ready to go outside. It's important that you brush your teeth or however you decide to phrase it. You will find the right words, right? But we can ask politely. And if he says, no, daddy, I haven't brushed my teeth yet. In fact, I haven't brushed my teeth for three days. Well, I know if he hasn't brushed his teeth in three days, it's not the end of the world. There's no reason. What? Three days? You haven't brushed your teeth? Are you crazy? Right? There's no reason to go into that. Oh, you haven't brushed your teeth for three days. Wow. Your breath's going to be smelling pretty bad. I don't know if anyone's going to be willing to talk to you when you go to school today or whatever you end up saying, right? But you politely guide him to brushing his teeth. And if you work with lower kind of threshold situations and you guide them towards making good decisions, and I even use that with my son often, I will say, you know, that was a very good decision by Lon. You just made a really good decision. That's really great that you decided to do that. So accentuating the positive. And if he makes a decision that's not so good, I will say, Bailan, I'm not so sure that that's such a good decision. If I was you, you might want to reconsider that. Rather than going outside having not brushed your teeth, it's probably a good idea if you brush your teeth before you go out, don't you think? Right? And you can do this. You can guide your children and help them to learn to make good decisions and explain to them why, right? But with a life partner, you know, they're already brushing their teeth. They're already have been brought up. They're already doing certain things. But if you notice things that you could support them with and encourage them with, you can do that. But we shouldn't try to shape or mold our partners because oftentimes what happens is we hold this perfect image in the mind of what we think our partner should be. And then when we take on this life partner, we try to shape and mold them into exactly the kind of person that we want them to be. And that causes discontentedness in the mind for ourselves and for them in the same way that it happens with children. So we need to encourage and support our partners, our children, our parents, and if people ask us for help or need our help, we can share that. But when we forcibly try to get people to fulfill this perfect image that we have in the mind of what they should be, then we're not allowing them to be their own individual unique person. And nobody likes that. People are going to dig their heels in. They're going to feel uncomfortable being around you because we're always trying to push our views and opinions, our ideas onto other people rather than just letting them peacefully exist. And as they have questions, as they have interests to learn, we can share that with them as they ask us for advice and guidance. But if we find ourselves pulling in the direction of putting our expectations and obligations on other people, it's not going to turn out well, whether it's partners, children, parents, coworkers, employees, neighbors, anybody in our life. Thank you for that, David. Okay, so we have a comment from Joy. She also says thank you. I think my husband is naturally content. He doesn't practice anything. He has just always been very stable. Unlike the ex. Unlike what? 
Her ex? Unlike the ex. Oh, okay. Well, on, oftentimes we select partners based on the wisdom that we acquire through our life. So if your ex was not calm and stable, that's probably what your mind craved in a new partner. So when you selected your new partner, you probably looked for somebody who was more stable and more calm and more peaceful. But I guarantee you, he's not yet enlightened. If you talk to him, he has things in his mind that is discontent because he wouldn't be able to be enlightened if he wasn't on this path. So if he learns this path, having already maybe starting out in a more calm demeanor, a more peaceful demeanor, he will progress because these things will feel very natural and very normal for him. Another thing that I would like to share with you too, Joy, is while it's nice that you're noticing the difference and you now have a partner that you feel is more calm, more stable, more peaceful, it's best not to compare or judge people from one to the other. It's good that, again, that you have this partner that you feel more is in line with what you would like to have for your life, but it's best to just, anything that's happened in the past with previous partners, just put it in the past and let it be in the past. Just exist with the mind in the present moment which is part of what we're going to be doing in our meditation today. Joy also has a question about her son. She asks, I'm currently telling my son he has to stay home and be homeschooled during the pandemic. He isn't happy about it, but I feel it's a safety issue. Is this wrong? We have talked to him about the reasoning and what situation will make it okay for him to return to school. Yeah, so what's going on with your son is his mind is discontent because he has this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness to go outside, to see his friends, to go to school, to participate in these activities at school. And because he can't get those, his mind is becoming discontent. He's craving, desire, attached, longing with a strong eagerness for something else rather than just being satisfied with what is. So what you're doing is actually great to explain to him the why. Children need that a lot. And you might have to explain that to him multiple times over multiple sessions so that it really soaks in. You can even help him to understand impermanence and help him to see that while this situation right now requires him to be at home and study at home, that's impermanent. And someday he will be able to go to school. So his mind, because he hasn't learned and studied these teachings and practiced them, his mind has this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness, and it wants permanence. And he not only wants permanence, but his mind also thinks that this situation of studying at home is permanent. So by you introducing the teaching of the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths to your son as part of the homeschooling would be excellent to help him release this attachment that he has to being outside so he can recognize impermanence and see that the situation that he's currently in is impermanent. And he understands why his mind is discontent and then he can become more satisfied with what is. We have a question from Aaron. I've always had this question about mental illness. How can you train a mind that is ill? Do you need a different approach? 
I actually don't consider minds to be mentally ill. They're essentially untrained, right? So the last talk we did on Sunday was talking about mental illness, where we described the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And the reason why we describe these is because this is the true problem. What people are describing is mental illness, which might be sad thoughts or frustration or anger or irritation or anxiety or suicidal thoughts or fears or phobias, all these different things that are labeled as mental illness is really just a mind that is untrained, a mind that doesn't understand impermanence, discontentedness, non-self, the three universal truths that we talked about at the beginning of this talk. And it's a mind that doesn't understand the four noble truths. It doesn't have right view because rather than accepting responsibility for its thoughts, ideas, and emotions, the mind has been taught to blame the chemistry in the brain. But it's not the chemistry in the brain that is the problem. It is that the mind is untrained and through being on this path, using the Eightfold Path as a foundation and as a way to train the mind and progress toward enlightenment, anybody who has any of these kind of what I would say are kind of average mental illnesses, whether it's PTSD, ADHD, ADD, bipolar, depression, anxiety, panic disorders, suicidal thoughts, any of these things that we talked about on Sunday, all of these can be remedied through learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind. And with a well-trained mind, then it can be controlled. Right now, the mind that is being considered to be mentally ill, it can't control itself because it's got sadness, it's got anger, it's got excitement, it's got anxiety, it's got fear. And the mind is untrained, it's out of control. But through learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind, then the mind can become trained and you will no longer experience these discontent feelings. It can attain this mental state of enlightenment where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. We have a question from Messiah. I have noticed some emotions such as anger, irritation, and frustration are not as strong as they used to be. And I'm very encouraged by this. However, all of a sudden, I feel a lot more sadness and I cannot trace where this is coming from as I've never felt depressed before. Can you provide any explanation or help, please, David? Yes, Marcia, I'm glad to hear that things are improving because I know you've been part of this program for a little bit and it's great to hear things are improving. As you're training the mind and you're moving along this path, it's not uncommon for various thoughts and ideas and things that kind of surface in the mind. And you might not know exactly what it's from when it first surfaces. It can be things from this life, from earlier in your life, from when you were a child and you just aren't in touch with those memories anymore. It can even be things from previous lives as well. What's important is you just keep sitting with the thoughts, you keep staying dedicated and consistent to the meditation practices, learning the Eightfold Path and progressing along the Eightfold Path. And as you progress, this sadness will start to dissipate more and more and you might get in touch with exactly why this is coming to the surface. We know that there's some craving, desire, attachment because if there's sadness, 
That's discontentedness. And the only thing that causes discontentedness in the mind is craving, desire, and attachment. So there's some mental longing with a strong eagerness. There's something the mind's holding on to. And it might be two, three, four, five different things. And you're just not aware of that right now. But as the mind clears out, it might come through more and more. And you just have to continue to build your mindfulness or awareness of mind. And of course, we do that through meditation, like what we're going to do today, and keep building your concentration so that when you become more and more aware of these thoughts, you can then apply right effort, which is to abandon these thoughts and cut them off. So it's good you're getting some progress, but don't be surprised as you progress through this that certain thoughts, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant arise. We think that, oh, we're going to do this work with the Buddha. It's so wonderful. It's peaceful. It's loving. It's kind. It's compassionate. It's generosity. Yes, all those things are part of the path, and that's where we're moving the mind to. But to get from point A, unenlightened mind, to point B, enlightened mind, sometimes the road becomes pretty rocky. And that's okay. Just stay dedicated. Stay consistent with it. And over time, we know that those painful feelings, that sadness that you're experiencing, we know it's impermanent. So just stick with the dedicated practice that you're doing that has provided this much benefit and just continue to stay focused on the goal. Okay, we have a question from Shital, and Shital is interested in asking live. So I'm going to pass over to Shital now. Over to you. Perfect. Okay, hello. Hi, Shital. How are you, sir? Very good. So, um, from last two, two, three days, obviously, I've been trying to meditate. And I want to ask something uh, which is related to my doing uh, meditation only. So, I'm like, uh, while meditating, I'm... Uh, I have this uh, depression issue. I've been uh, feeling like this from last many, many years and I've been on medication and everything. And I've always realized that, you know, uh, practicing uh, mindfulness always helps me. Uh, the other day we did it together for, for some time and then afterwards I did it myself. So it's always helpful. When, then after like two, three sessions, uh, these, these problems always start to arise. And my problem is that... Uh, uh, when I sit down to meditate, I'm clinging to certain feelings. Uh, uh, those, uh, you know, th those feelings which make me feel depressed, uh, beat resentment or hurt to towards somebody. And I know those, uh, those are the, those are also the feelings which make me feel like, like crying all the time. Like I mentioned in my last um, session, that I always feel like crying. Uh, those are the feelings. They, they, they come up. Uh, when I meditate and I keep clinging to uh, those feelings because that the pain is there subconsciously. Uh, I don't want to uh, address them uh, because, because you know, uh, whenever I try to address them, I either don't know how uh, the, the solutions to the problems or the confusions or, or I, um, you know, uh, whatever is making me feel that way or I don't have enough courage to choose uh, what, what feels right. Uh, so I always avoid addressing them, but I also don't want them to go away uh, at the, when I'm meditating because um, because I then feel that what if, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm always like, what if I forget them and, uh, uh, you know, 
they're there for a reason they are my uh, dilemmas and confusions which need resolution so when i sit down to meditate i just don't uh, feel like letting go of those feelings i cling to them i fear that you know uh, if i stop uh, giving them attention uh, the, the much needed importance if i you know stop thinking about them they will probably uh, um, remain unresolved and i'll just uh, move my attention from there uh, they're not pleasant feelings and uh, i'm still choosing to cling to them it's it's hard i'm my mind is constantly running racing uh, i am you know it's always reasoning it's always thinking uh, i'm not able to let go of them uh, because uh, let let you know i've tried this like um, you know as per instructions how you meditate okay. i always try to try to let go of them and that feels light and honestly i'm not used to feeling light so when it feels like i don't i i'm not comfortable with with that feeling with that light feeling i'm i'm comfortable with heavy feelings you know because i'm used to feeling heavy mhm okay this is so, a gr- great question are, are did you have more chantel okay that, that that was it yeah okay um, this is a, this is an interesting question so a couple of things to talk about first one is you just started learning on sunday essentially with me and on monday when we did our private session i help you with meditation and you've just started meditating so you're not going to release these feelings that quickly it's going to take a very dedicated life practice to gradually train the mind towards this enlightened mind state so you need to practice patience okay it's not going to happen very quickly but the other thing that's really interesting about what you're saying and is something that we even talked about on Sunday is about sometimes how we start identifying ourselves with these painful feelings in your case the sadness and depression that you've been experiencing and we start identifying with that and we start holding on to it and we start latching on to it because the mind wants permanence it craves permanence so even in the 2 or 3 days that you've been meditating you're starting to feel a little bit of benefit which is outstanding and you're starting to feel the mind kind of lighten up a little bit and now this change of this lightened mind the mind doesn't like it because if we say the mind craves permanence what we're essentially saying is the mind likes permanence it wants to keep things stuck and the other thing we're saying is the mind does not like change it doesn't like it when things change it doesn't like impermanence so even though you've made the conscious choice to start pursuing this path as the mind feels even just a little sliver of feeling lightness and releasing the burden a little bit that feels different for you and the mind doesn't like that and it wants to revert back to those painful feelings but what you've got to do is you've got to be stronger than that you've got to stand up and you've got to just decide okay i'm getting rid of these painful feelings once and for all you have to decide are you interested in this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy that's permanent and you can be pleasant you can smile you can go in the sunshine you can talk to friends and family and people without feeling hurt or upset or angered and you can have the wisdom to have stable jobs and stable relationships or 
are you interested in staying in this sadness, this despair, this misery, this burden, this heaviness that's in the mind and on the shoulders? Do you want to stay on this medication and just keep holding on to it? Now, I'm not going to say when you should or shouldn't get off your medication, but you can already see in just two or three days, the mind started lightening up a little bit, but then it wants to revert back to the painful feelings. So you've got to understand the mind isn't going to like what you're going to do to it. It's not going to like this impermanence. It wants to stay in the darkness, but you've got to almost look at the mind as a third entity and say, okay, you're going to do what I'm telling you to do. Because right now the mind is untrained. That's why it's experiencing the sadness and the frustration and the anger and so forth. It's like a wild animal in the forest that wants to just do its own thing. Now the trainer comes into the forest and wants to start training the wild animal. Well, what is the wild animal going to do? It's going to run or it's going to hunker down behind a log and it's going to hide. That's essentially what your mind's doing is it's hiding from you. You've got to say, no, 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 no. You're coming with me and you're going to get training. The animal's going to resist. It's going to complain. It's going to be upset. It's not going to want to do what you're interested in doing with it. But you've got to decide, I'm going to train this mind and we're going to go on this journey. And the, this wild animal, i.e. your mind, it needs to get the training. Therefore, once it gets more and more training, you'll be able to control it. But you've got to stay patient and recognize that this is a life practice. But it's very encouraging that you're already seeing the progress. It's just that the mind is uncomfortable with that progress because it's new. It's different. It's impermanence. So just continue to walk in this direction of learning the path and applying these teachings to include meditation. And by the way, while we're talking, I wanted to mention to Marcia, if you would like to have a private session to talk about this, you can schedule a private session because you were unaware of why the sadness was coming up. And oftentimes when I talk with people privately, I can kind of ask you a few questions and help you get in touch with that. And Chatel and I had a really good talk a couple of days ago, which really helped her get started. So I'm glad to see that you're joining us today, Chatel, so you can learn and continue to progress on this path. My problem is that when I sit down to meditate, I cling because uh, I cling to those emotions because if I always have this confusion, I'm a very confused person in general. So I, I have this confusion that, you know, if I let go of those feelings, those hard feelings that I'll not be able to ponder upon the problems that that these feelings sort of are trying to make uh, trying to bring uh, in front of me I, I will not be able to resolve those issues so I don't know I am always in a way interested in keeping them on my mind all the time because I probably I am under uh, the uh, impression that if I am thinking about the problem on the all the time then I'll come up with a solution but while meditating, if I have to let go of those feelings, those thoughts, then I'm like, I, what if I forget them? What if I just let go of them? Uh, what if my problem was to um, resolve uh, issue with a family member and I, uh, I, I was choosing to have a conversation with them 
and uh, i had i was i wanted to talk out of the hurt that they've caused me and stuff and if i meditate and i feel light then i'll not have those resent i i let go of the resentments and hurt then i'll probably not be able to conduct the conversation with that intensity okay so let's look at the two different things that you're talking about here one thing you're talking about is the painful feelings the resentment the anger the frustration the other thing you're talking about is the issues that surround those feelings and the reason why those feelings are coming up to begin with okay what you're working to do is you're working to eliminate in breathing mindfulness meditation you're working to eliminate the mind holding on and holding on to these painful feelings training the mind to let go uh, also also i would like to mention that when mm-hmm. i am holding on to the hold, holding on to these feelings i my uh, because those feelings are heavy and difficult my breathing also is uh, you know uh, slow shallow uh, and i'm used to feeling that way it's, it's getting difficult for me to feel normal and like i i mentioned i to let go of the feelings okay you're just getting started chantel so be patient but what you're doing in meditation through breathing mindfulness meditation is you're training the mind to let go of this craving desire attachment this aspect of the mind that holds on so tightly when you come out of meditation in your daily life you're still going to have certain issues around you that you need to deal with you're still going to need to make wise decisions in your life to improve the quality of your life But these painful feelings of resentment, frustration, and anger isn't going to produce anything wholesome in your life. You need to let go of these painful feelings and then just look at the present moment of what issues you've got in your life so you can make wise decisions towards improving the quality of your life. Now, I know a little bit about your culture and you kind of have mentioned it there for a moment about having a discussion with your parents with a certain level of intensity. Well, the goal is not to have a conversation with intensity because the more intense you are, the more craving, desire, attachment, the more mental longing with a strong eagerness, the more aggression that you insert into a conversation, the other parties are just going to be more aggressive as well. And I know in certain cultures, the aggression is kind of part of the conversation and a part of the, the, the culture, but that's not led to anything helpful in this relationship between you and your parents is having this aggression. So you need to let go of the aggression. And if you're talking with your parents and they would like to be aggressive with you, okay, just let them be aggressive and let them get it all out. Let them extinguish all of it. And then when they're done, then you talk kind, polite, peaceful, respectful. They're not necessarily going to change their behavior, but you're working on changing yours. So if they want to be aggressive and hostile, okay, that's their practice. That's what they're doing. But that doesn't mean you need to match it because if you match their hostility, this hostility is just going to go up and up and up and up. And the more you let them extinguish their aggression in a particular conversation, and then you come in with kind, polite, gentle speech, although that's not what's normal for you and that's not what you've done in the past, you will find that you will get better results that way. 
There's no good results that are going to come with two people speaking aggressively with each other. So in meditation, let go of these painful thoughts. Train the mind to let go of all thoughts and ideas. Don't hold on to anything. When you are out of meditation, you still have life experiences around you that are happening that you're going to need to make wise choices. But if you hold on to these painful thoughts, and if you are still having craving, desire, attachment with this mental longing with a strong eagerness, you're not going to be able to conduct your life as well with this craving, desire, attachment. You just got to train the mind to let go. Otherwise, everything's going to stay locked. There's going to be this burden that you're carrying around. You're going to carry around this heaviness and things aren't going to progress. It's like a log jam. The logs are all jammed in together and you've got to start slowly untangling this log jam by letting these things go little by little. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Chital, for sharing that. I think there's lots of people who can benefit from listening. Now, uh, on to a question from Deborah. She asks, I struggle to concentrate while meditating. Should I do mindfulness meditation first before adding loving kindness meditation? Absolutely. That's the way I always suggest if you're able to practice that way. There are certainly times where I've just done loving kindness meditation only, but it never has the same results as if you do breathing mindfulness meditation to bring the mind into the present moment, reduce the craving, then do loving kindness meditation. You're going to get much more benefit that way. We have a question from Manal. Teach David, would maintaining a how told his life prolong a person's journey towards enlightenment? Even though I'm fulfilling my responsibilities as co-worker, etc., I feel that I'm drawing myself towards attachments. Whenever I deeply listen to your chants, I can't help but feel sorrow for these attachments. The household life is definitely more challenging to attain enlightenment because there's so many things that we do. There's so many different relationships, there's jobs, there's material possessions, there's very little time for most household practitioners to dedicate to learning and practicing these teachings. So the Buddha talked about household life. He said it's very dusty and very dirty, okay? It is more challenging, but what that means is your practice needs to be very well-established and very disciplined in order to attain enlightenment in the household life. If you became ordained, because those are the two paths, either the household practitioner's path, which is still the Eightfold Path, or the ordained path, which is still the Eightfold Path. It's just that you're not working in terms of having a job, you're not taking care of kids, you're not taking care of a house, you're not buying clothes, you're not doing so many things. There's a very strong discipline around the ordained path. There's no guarantee that somebody ordaining is going to become enlightened, but it is meant to be kind of a womb for people, the mother's womb. It's kind of like an area to develop by living at the temple, by ordaining, by practicing these teachings. In that way, a person is more likely to attain enlightenment in the ordained path, but it's still not guaranteed. You still have to learn all the same teachings. 
that you would if you were in the household practitioner's path. You have more time, you have less obligations, and you have more discipline that's applied in the ordained path. In the household practitioner's path or life or as a household practitioner, you need to have self-discipline and there's a lot to learn because you're interacting in a way that ordained practitioners don't. So I would say the ordained path is definitely easier in terms of eliminating attachment, but it's also more strict because there's more discipline as a part of that. If you're able to attain enlightenment in the household life, once you attain enlightenment, you have complete freedom, not only freedom and liberation of the mind, but you have freedom and liberation to do so many things in your life because you're not living by this strict discipline. There's also people who ordain, become enlightened, and then actually unordained too. There's people who do that. So there's just the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings that go along with it. No matter who attains enlightenment, whether it's through an ordained practitioner or a household practitioner, you still need to learn and practice the same teachings. It's just a matter of how much time and effort you have in the various roles and whether you have this well-defined discipline in this enormous community of ordained practitioners around you to support you in this path or whether you're living at home and you need to have this self-discipline and you need to create this life around you where you're working towards attaining enlightenment. But this is why I also encourage people to involve their family and see if their family can get on board with everybody working towards enlightenment through these teachings. Because if you're living at home with a life partner and children and all these other people, if you guys are all working together, you can support each other very much like a ordained practitioner would get support by other ordained practitioners. And you'll see that together you can all support each other and encourage each other along this path through living in the household life as well. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, so let's go ahead and do meditation then. What we're going to do is move away from the Four Noble Truths, but keeping them in mind because the whole reason why we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation is because it is craving, it is desire, it is attachment that's causing the mind to be discontent. And the way to eliminate it is to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. So because we recognize the problem in the first and second noble truth, we're implementing the third and fourth noble truth, which is to eliminate this craving, desire attachment through breathing mindfulness meditation, which shows up on the Eightfold Path as right concentration. The eighth step of the Eightfold Path is right concentration, which includes breathing mindfulness meditation. Also, the seventh step is right mindfulness or awareness of mind. We're cultivating that and developing that through our meditation. And the sixth step is right effort, where we apply effort to abandon unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities in the mind. So by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation daily, 
you're practicing those last three steps of the Eightfold Path, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These three steps make up the mental discipline of the path. This is the mental training and the discipline that we need to remove this unwholesome poison, this unwholesome root, this fire of craving that causes the mind to be discontent. And if you can meditate in the morning, in the middle of the day, in the evening, this is what the Buddha did. And this is where an ordained path gives you the amount of time to be able to do that. As a householder, if you can do that, great. If you can only just do once a day, that's fine too. If you can do twice a day, like morning and evening, that's fine too. But you're going to have to do a whole lot of meditation to train away this craving, this desire, this attachment, the mind's tendency to hold on. And what you'll see in the guidance of the meditation that I'm going to be sharing with you is we're training the mind to just let go, let go, let go all the way through the meditation. You're just going to be training the mind to focus on the breath so that you train the mind to let go. And this becomes very beneficial in daily life. So as various thoughts and ideas and things happen in your daily life and these thoughts and ideas arise, you can just let them go. Because if the mind holds on to these thoughts, ideas, situations, experiences, expectations, obligations, you're just going to keep causing the mind to be discontent over and over and over and over again. So by training the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation, you will eliminate the discontent mind because you're working to eliminate this unwholesome root of craving. Now, the Buddhist teachings, the way that I understand them, are very simple, very clear, very concise, very direct. Remember, when he taught 2,500 years ago, the people around him in the language that he spoke, it wasn't a written language. They didn't write anything down at the time of his life. So he had to teach in a way that was very clear, concise, direct, and very easy for people to understand so that they could then take it home with them and practice it. So the meditation that the Buddha taught is actually very simple, very easy. If you're looking for a very complex meditation, this is the mind's craving. This is the ego looking for complexity. But one of the things that I do in the teachings that I share is I always look for ways to really simplify the teachings and make them very easy to understand in a very clear and concise way. Because the more clear and concise that it is, the more simple that it is, you can then carry it with you in daily life and actually practice the teachings. So this meditation that I'm going to share with you is one of two meditations that you need to attain enlightenment. There's only two meditations that you actually need. There's hundreds and thousands of meditations out there in the world that have been developed after the Buddha's lifetime. But there's only two primary meditations that he taught as part of his teachings. And if you just focus on learning these two and really dedicate time to establish those two meditations, then what you're going to find is you can get really deep, deep and developed meditation and get a lot of benefit and results from it. So let's go ahead and 
practice breathing mindfulness meditation. We practice breathing mindfulness meditation in four different positions, either seated, lying, standing, or walking. So today, take a position either seated, standing, or lying. Most of us are probably going to be sitting either on a chair or on the floor. If you're sitting on the floor, you can cross your legs. If you need to put pillows or some kind of cushion under your rear to get your butt up in the air and release the angle at your hip so that you don't have a real tight angle there, that can be really helpful for you to keep the circulation going in the legs. Because you don't want your legs to be real tight, then the circulation is going to be inhibited. And what you're going to find is you're going to start experiencing pain in the body. Anytime you experience pain during meditation, that means your focus is going to be on pain. So you want to change your position so that you can then focus on training the mind, not experiencing pain. So if you feel any pain at all during meditation, just move your body and get into a comfortable position, but not luxurious. So sitting on the floor or sitting in the chair, if you're sitting in a chair, put your feet flat on the floor or cross your legs. This practice isn't about everyone doing it exactly the same. There's lots of different options here. And any good meditation teacher should help you discover what is comfortable for you. Everyone's going to be a little bit different. You're going to need these various positions to meditate throughout your life. You're not going to always be able to meditate in the same position all the time because the body is impermanent. So we need to develop all these different positions. With your upper body, it should be upright. It should have the, the muscles engaged. This engagement of your upper body muscles are going to keep the mind active, attentive, and alert. If you're in a chair or you're leaning up against a wall or something like this, it's just going to create a more luxurious feeling and the mind's going to have a tendency to become unattentive or unalert. So maintain your engagement of your upper body muscles so that it keeps the alertness in the mind. Your hands and the arms. Gautama Buddha put his right hand on top of his left with his thumbs together. And then he put his hands in his lap. If this works for you, use it. If not, there's other options as well. You can put your hands on your lap. You can put your hands on your knees. You can, if you're in a chair, you can put your arms and hands on the armrest, whatever is comfortable. When you start moving into meditation with the body, it should be like the body doesn't even exist. It's like you're just kind of stilling the body so that you can train the mind. Essentially, the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. But to get to the boss, we have to go through the employee. The employee is the body. By making the employee peaceful and content, i.e. comfortable, but not luxurious, we can then get to the boss, right? We want to make our employees comfortable, but not luxurious. We want to keep the mind's attentiveness. So by making the body comfortable, like it doesn't even exist almost, then we can access the boss by training that mind, okay? From your seated position or lying or standing, close your eyes and start breathing in through the nose 
and out through the nose. This is the breath. You want to establish a nice, steady, consistent breath. The breath is your anchor in meditation. As you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, you want to just take nice, natural, steady breaths. The breath is the present moment. So fixate the mind on the breath, either the sound of the breath entering the nose or the sensation of the air moving over the skin into the nose. Fixate the mind on that sound of the breath entering the body or the sensation of the air entering the nose. Just breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to let you stay here and establish the breath. A nice, natural, steady, consistent breath. Don't try to force it or control the breath. Just try to have a nice, steady, consistent breath. I'm going to do some chanting just to kind of ease our minds into meditation. And then I'll be back with some guidance to help you deepen your meditation. If you know these chants, feel free to chant along. Sati Sata Tava 
Okay, you should either be sitting, standing, or lying with the body comfortable but not luxurious. Keeping the muscles in the body erect in order to activate the mind. Keep it attentive and alert. You should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just a nice, steady, consistent breath. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Either the sound coming into the nose and out of the nose, or the sensation of the air running over the skin into the nose. Fixating the mind on the breath is the present moment. You're training the mind to come into the present moment. As the mind wanders during meditation, if it happens to go to the past, cut those thoughts off, let them go. Whether they're painful thoughts, pleasant thoughts, or thoughts that are neither painful nor pleasant, let them go. Don't try to evaluate them. Don't try to judge them. Don't try to label them. Just let them go. Cut them off and bring the mind to the breath. Wherever you notice the mind has wandered into the past, let it go and focus on the breath. Likewise, if the mind goes to the future, as the mind wanders and wants to take you on a journey, cut it off, let it go. Wherever you notice the mind is moving into the future, don't try to judge the thoughts, observe the thoughts, label the thoughts, or evaluate them in any way. Just cut them off, let them go, and bring the mind to the breath. If any thoughts, ideas, perceptions come into the mind of any type, just let them go. Cut them off. Focus the mind on the breath and only the breath. If you've just started training, you're going to notice thoughts, ideas, perceptions coming into the mind. All of this is impermanent. If you train the mind, you can cut it off. You can let it go. You can then control the mind by focusing it 
on the breath. So I'm going to let you sit with the breath and just work on training it to focus on the breath. Train the mind to focus on the breath. I'm not even going to talk to you during meditation because I'm not interested in having your mind hold on to my voice. This is an independent practice that you need to do on your own. You have nowhere to go. You have nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath.
start to come out of meditation I use chanting to go into meditation and out of meditation in order to become aware of the mind and aware of the breath kind of ease the mind in and out of meditation the Buddha called this setting up mindfulness in front of you so before we meditate we should set up mindfulness in front of us for me, I choose to do chanting, but for you, you can choose to do chanting. I teach that as part of this program, or you can do really anything that you like. Just ensure that you're setting up mindfulness, getting the body comfortable, easing the mind into meditation, becoming aware of the mind and aware of the breath. In doing that, you will get much more benefit out of your meditation rather than just try to jump in and jump out of meditation. You kind of have to coax the mind a little bit because kind of like what Chatel was saying is the mind is going to want to hold on to that darkness. When it's time to meditate, 
the mind's going to think of every reason under the sun why you shouldn't be doing it. So you kind of have to coax it into meditating a bit. So find out what works for you to set up mindfulness in front of you. If you use chanting, it can be very helpful, not only to become aware of the mind and aware of the breath and ease the mind into meditation and out of meditation, but it can also really help to develop the memory as well, building concentration and building memory. If you'd like to learn the chanting, you can look in chapter 11 of the book. You'll see that in there, I have the chanting for you guys. Any questions on your meditation session? Anything that you would like to ask? We have three questions from Shital. We have a few questions from Shital. First one is, if we let go of each and every thought, how do we then address the issues of our daily longer run and need attention regularly? So this seems to be a follow-up from Shital's earlier query. Sure. So in meditation, you're just training the mind to let go. You're still going to have thoughts. You're still going to have memories. You're still going to have wisdom outside of meditation. But in this dedicated, purposeful, active training session of meditation, we're just training the mind to let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. So then as you go through daily life and you need to address some of these problems that you're facing, you won't hold on to your views and opinions so strongly and be aggressive, but you can then more casually, more easily solve these problems with the wisdom that you have. But if the mind holds on, then it's going to be aggressive and that's going to create problems in your life. So you're not erasing the thoughts or ideas or memories during meditation. You're not erasing it. You're just training the mind to let go and to help you gain control over the mind by as the mind wanders and kind of takes on a life of its own, you can boom, bring it back to the breath. So during daily life, if something happens prior to you being enlightened, there's going to be a lot of things that are ha going to happen that are going to arise anger and frustration as that happens in daily life. If you train the mind well to let go, then boom, you can bring your mind, control it to bring it away from that anger or frustration or sadness. So we're not erasing the mind. We're just training it to let go, to release that grip. Right now, your, your mind's got that strong grip around those painful feelings. It's got all those expectations and obligations that you have for your parents. You're expecting your parents to be a certain way. You're angry because they haven't treated you the way that you've expected your whole life. And the mind's just holding on so tightly. So you've got to let that go or else you're never going to be able to resolve the problems with the mind. Next question from Shital. Aren't there chances that the practice of non-attachment, be it to people or even thoughts, may lead to loss of identity? What if I forget the desires to pursue my dreams or goals in life only? What will I then do? The training that you're doing with the mind isn't going to forget anything. You're definitely going to let go of this self-identity where it's not as important for you. 
there's still going to be a physical body. There's still going to be a mind, but you won't put so much significance on it that if somebody steps on that self-identity, you're not going to be angry and hostile. So you're not forgetting the goals and the objectives. You're still going to have goals, objective, and interest, and you pursue them as such. But if you have expectation or if your parents have expectations that they've put on you to attain certain goals, then you're going to aggressively pursue them without thought and wisdom that can more readily move towards these goals and objectives. So if you're just pursuing certain aspects of life out of craving or anger or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, essentially you're just pursuing it and pursuing it and pursuing it, then you're going to make very hasty decisions. You're not going to make very good decisions. You're going to make decisions in very cloudy environment where it's based off of craving that you have and craving that other people have. So if you eliminate that craving and pursue life goals as objectives and interests, then you'll be more readily able to pursue them and attain them because now you're going to be doing it through the eightfold path where you're going to have right view. Essentially, you're going to understand that you're responsible for everything that happens in your life. And those discontent feelings that arise, you know that you're responsible for them and you can actively work to eliminate them. You're going to have right intention, which is practicing harmlessness, non-ill will. You're going to practice right speech, which is speech that is at the right time. It's true. It's gentle. It's beneficial. It's with a mind of loving kindness without blaming other people. See, this is why you had the problem the other day with your parents, because you went and started blaming them, right? You weren't speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech. Then you're going to practice right action where you're not causing harm through your bodily action. You'll practice right livelihood where you're not causing harm through your livelihood and how you sustain your life. You're going to be practicing right effort where you're going to be working to abandon unwholesome mental states and cultivate wholesome mental states. You're going to be working on building right mindfulness or awareness of mind so that when those anger and frustration arises, you can abandon it. Or when you have loving kindness or generosity arise in the mind, you can support that and encourage it and help it to grow. And you're going to practice right concentration, which is developing a meditation practice to develop concentration and focus of the mind. When you walk this eightfold path and you understand it very deeply and practice it very deeply, you'll start applying it in all the various parts of your life. Life isn't going to instantly become perfect for you, but through your good, wholesome decisions to learn and practice these teachings and practicing these teachings in all areas of your life, life will slowly start to get better and better because the mind is going to slowly get better and better. The condition of the mind is going to be more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You're going to have more wisdom in which to operate and make decisions in life so you'll be able to make better and better decisions. So instead of walking into the living room and being hostile and aggressive with your parents, and then when you get angry and frustrated and the whole household is upset and you walk away angry and frustrated, you're not going to do that anymore 
when you start learning and practicing these teachings, you might walk in calmly, politely, respectfully, talk with your parents. If they become aggressive, okay, let them be aggressive, but you don't go there. You stay calm and you focus on practicing the Eightfold Path in all of these various conversations, all these various relationships that you have, and over time, life will get better and better because you're improving the condition of the mind through this wisdom of the Buddha and through practicing and seeing the teachings work more and more and more, you will see the truth and you will start practicing that more and more. Another question from Shital, she says, I believe it's still easier to let go of thoughts, but not that easy to let go of feelings. Sometimes those feelings even control my breathing. Today, I purposefully and bravely have tried to let go of the feelings also, and I have felt light. I believe my notion that clinging to strong thoughts and feelings arising at the time of meditation is necessary for me was wrong. Okay, so you've got more wisdom today. You realize that by holding on to the thoughts and feelings that it's not helpful. So you've gained that wisdom now. And each day through practicing these teachings, right, you learn and practice. And as you do that, you're going to gain more and more wisdom. So you've got the book. Soon there's going to be an audio book. There's videos. There's podcasts. There's these online classes. There's private guidance. There's in-person classes someday if any of you guys would like to come to Chiang Mai. There's lots of ways for you to take in this wisdom and then apply it in your life. And as you do, you will see how true the Buddhist teachings are. Don't believe the Buddha. Don't believe me. But learn and practice so you can see the truth for yourself. And the more truth and wisdom that you discover, that's the mind awakening to true reality. Now the mind operates through these new wisdoms that you're going to gain. And Chatel, you've only just started. You're three or four days into this. But the beauty is that you've learned in your life over the 28 years that you've existed. You've learned certain things. You've experienced happiness in the past. But now in the last few years, things have gotten very dark for you. But now, just like you walked into the darkness, you're going to walk out of the darkness towards the light. And as you do that and you make all these good, wholesome decisions, building up your life better and better and better, you will then have the wisdom to ensure that your life never goes back to where it is now. So where you've been in the last few months, that's the worst it's going to ever get for you. If you learn and practice these teachings, that's the worst it's ever going to get. Things are just going to gradually get better. Now, some days are going to feel horrible and you're going to revert back to the problematic things that you've done in the past, but you're going to learn from that and you're going to see and you're going to improve. You're going to get wisdom. But now you're walking towards the light. You're walking the path with the Buddha. And as you do, your mind and your life's only going to get better. Thank you for your question, Chital. I, uh, for one, really appreciate listening to that. Okay, so on to our next question. Sue Julian on Facebook asks, will the mind eventually have less thoughts during meditation as I continue to practice? I find that currently there are almost constant thoughts that are arising. 
Yes, as you meditate more, as you practice more, you accumulate the benefits of meditation, there'll be less and less and less thoughts. The mind will become very empty. Now, when I say empty mind, you might think like we were talking with Chattel that you're erasing thoughts, but that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is this wisdom that you acquire through walking this path will get soaked into the mind and you will hold this wisdom in the mind and it'll just exist. It'll just be there. But you got to clear out all of this unwholesome thoughts and feelings, ideas, perceptions, judgment, ego, all this dirtiness, all this ickiness, all this pollution, right? The 10 fetters, we call them the taints. What a taint is, is pollution of the mind, right? These three poisons, these three unwholesome roots, these three fires, you're clearing all of this pollution out of the mind so the brilliance, the enlightened mind can shine through. And the enlightened mind, it's going to be in the present moment. It's going to only reside in the present moment. You're going to have memories of the past. You're going to have goals and objectives for the future. But the mind's going to only reside in the present moment. And it's going to make good, wholesome decisions based on the wisdom of these teachings, namely the Eightfold Path. And as you make good decisions every moment, your life and your mind's going to get better and better. So as you empty out the mind of all these unwholesome things, namely craving, anger, ignorance, the three unwholesome roots, the 10 fetters, you start practicing all these good wholesome teachings that are shared in this program. As all that clears out, the mind clears out the pollution and now there's just wisdom an unconditioned mind that is permanently peaceful calm serene and content with joy but you've got to be patient you can't even crave enlightenment if you have a mental longing and a strong eagerness for enlightenment you'll never get it so as i describe what an enlightened mind is and it's like wow that sounds so wonderful i want it well okay use it as motivation to encourage you to practice these teachings and continue your practice, but you need to pursue it as a goal, an objective, and an interest. And just every day, build more and more wisdom through learning and practicing the teachings to get you closer and closer to that goal. I have a question, David. So in your own meditation practice over the years, do you find that the kinds of experiences you have in meditation tend to become more consistent? Or do you still find that you have wildly different experiences during meditations? Every meditation is different. Yeah, because of impermanence, right? Early on in practice, like really, really early, tons of thoughts, massive amount of thoughts. It was like a brick wall, like stone. And I didn't even know what I was doing because I didn't have the coaching and teaching and guidance. That's one of the reasons why I teach, because I didn't have it. And it was like hitting a brick wall, a massive amount of thoughts and things coming to the mind. And I didn't even know what I was doing. Then there was a period of time where I just stopped meditating. And I would have never said at that time that I was actually pursuing the path. But I stopped for a good two, three, four years. And that was some of the worst times of my life. And then I got back into it and... I understood the path and I started pursuing the path. And that's where real 
progress was made. That's where through dedication and commitment, that's where all the progress came. And also having confidence in the Buddhist teachings. The more that I saw the truth and I understood what I was really doing and I actually practiced what the Buddha actually taught, that's when the real progress started happening. But even now, today, every meditation session is different. And I don't have any expectations of what I'm going to achieve during meditation. I just know that every day I'm going to meditate, morning and evening, sometimes other times during the day. I just know I'm going to meditate and I don't know what the result's going to be. And I kind of like that. I kind of like the spontaneity of I don't have a fixed time to meditate other than when I first wake up and when I go to bed. I don't time how long I'm going to meditate for. I don't have any expectations of what will or won't happen during meditation. I just do the meditation and whatever happens, happens. And just stay fixed on that breath. Now, one thing that I don't do any longer is I no longer do loving kindness meditation other than to teach it because I did so much of that at one time in my life. I no longer need to do it. Loving kindness meditation is to eliminate hatred or anger. And I no longer have that in the mind. So I no longer have a need for loving kindness meditation. But because I eradicated that from the mind, I know the loving kindness meditation to use in order for you guys to do the same thing. So that's why I teach it. But I never do loving kindness meditation by myself any longer because I just don't need it. And I used to also do meditation for sexual cravings in order to bring sexual craving and ultimately eliminate it. I used to do that. Didn't have to do too much of that. But I did some of it just to experience it and see the effects of it. And I also did the meditation for non-self that I share in the book. But I didn't get to that meditation of non-self until I'd already had a lot of other foundational teachings underway. And it was time to do that. There's kind of a right time to start using that. So anything that I teach, I've actually done it. And the reason why I teach it is because I know through experience that it works. I would never teach you anything that I haven't experienced myself and know with 100% certainty that it works. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay. So this is breathing mindfulness meditation. You need to practice it every day, every day. And if you miss a day or you forget a day or you're feeling a little bit lazy and you don't do it, it's okay. Put it in the past. But just build up your practice so that every day you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. And I can tell you right now that you're not going to be able to do meditation every single day for the rest of your life. Why? Because that's permanence. And there is no permanence, right? Everything's impermanent. But what you need to do is build up a steady, consistent, dedicated practice where you're meditating throughout your life. And if you kind of aren't meditating at all right now, then build up to once a day. If you're already meditating once a day, move it to twice a day. If you're doing twice a day, see if you can get a third one in there sometimes and build up that practice and just slowly, gradually build that up. What's beautiful about doing three times of meditation a day or even two a day is if you miss one for any particular reason, there's still another one or two in there. 
So you never know what's going to happen in a certain day. So if something comes up and you need to go address that, if you're already set up for a once or twice or three times a day meditation and you missed one or two here and there, you still have a daily consistent practice. But if you only ever do one meditation a day and you miss that, then you've missed meditation that day. So try to build up to at least twice a day, at least twice a day, morning and evening, and doing this consistently without timing it, without having any expectations. Just ease the mind into meditation, do your meditation, and when you feel like you're done, you're done. Don't judge your meditation. Don't try to compare it to other sessions. Yesterday I got so much benefit, today nothing happened. Don't try to figure it out. Just stay dedicated to it and just continue to progress more and more and more. If you're noticing your mind is really busy with a lot of thoughts, you might want to consider walking meditation. Walking meditation is really good to kind of empty out the thoughts. If you've got a lot of racing thoughts during meditation, you can do walking meditation first and then do seated. Or you might just do walking and that's it. So that's something that we can explore on another day. And then, of course, if you're having hatred or anger, ill will, which if you're not enlightened, you surely do. So you're going to need loving kindness meditation, which is what we're going to cover next Wednesday at nine o'clock Thai time so that you can learn loving kindness meditation and how to apply this in practice. But between now and then, keep working on breathing mindfulness meditation. On Sunday, we're going to go into chapter 23, which is symbolism of the teachings, kind of reminders through imagery. And I'm going to show you guys some of the artwork, some of the symbolism, some of the architecture, and how they've captured the Buddhist teachings in certain imagery and symbolism so that when you see this imagery, it can remind you of the teachings. Okay? So between now and the next time we're together, just keep meditating, keep learning the teachings through the book, through the podcast, through the videos, through all the various resources that I provide for you. And if you feel like you'd like to schedule a private time, feel free to do that. Whether you're listening on social media, on our podcast, or in our virtual classroom, this option is available to all of you to receive some private guidance with one-on-one coaching through audio or video. You can see the link for this in any of the content that I provide. There's a link to actually go and schedule an appointment. So until we see each other next time, have a wonderful rest of your day and continue to walk the path with the Buddha. Sawadihap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.